Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for the freedom to come and worship you. Thank you for friends gathered around us. Thank you for parents and grandparents and roommates and people who are part of our community. We pray, God, like, like Richard mentioned in the video, we would come to you and hope for a greater hunger to be built up in each of us, to share Christ, to point toward the hope of Christ. For those of us who followed him a long time, we sit on such a treasure of wisdom and resources that are not ours, that have been given to us. And so may these words from your holy word, may these thoughts, may these impressions lead us further up and further in into the adventure of your kingdom. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see you all. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, I want to start with kind of a fun story about my dad. Many of you know that uh, my dad passed away uh, actually six weeks ago today. Um, And it's been good and fun to um, receive some good memories along the journey. Those of you who've lost people, you know, um, folks will just reach out after someone in your life passes. And a lot of times they'll give you this great gift where they'll send you a note or they'll, they'll remind you of something about the person that you love that either you didn't know or that you forgot. Uh, so something funny, something kind of whimsical. So I got an email a few weeks ago from a friend of mine from Boy Scouts. Uh, my whole family was involved in the Scouts, even my mom. She was uh, one of our leaders in Cub Scouts. Uh, and I never would have gotten my Eagle Scout or any of these other great adventures I've had in my life if it weren't for my dad. Like, scouting was a big part of our family. And so when you go on the scouts, you got to go on really long drives. So picture in your mind a map of the United States. I grew up in Houston. We went on a Boy Scout adventure trip to the Florida Keys, and we drove from Houston across the Gulf Coast down the whole arm of Florida to the Florida Keys. I don't know the actual amount in time that it took us to do that, probably because it's lost in a blur of just that whole experience. But my dad drove uh, one of several vehicles in this caravan that we had going down to the Florida Keys. So picture, you know, it's the mid-90s. My dad's driving a monstrous big suburban, right? Like these things just used to be ubiquitous in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Heading east on I-10, cutting through God knows where in in Mississippi or Alabama or somewhere on the Gulf Coast. And the the suburban's full of teenage boys and my dad. And I was in a different car, so I wasn't around for this particular story. But my buddy Matt is sitting next to my dad in the passenger seat. And so they're driving along, and, you know, the boys are goofing off. I mean, a suburban full of teenage boys. That should just make us all, like, go, oof, wow, okay, that, that's, that's incredible. Dad's driving, he's got his hands on the wheel, and it's hot. Like, it's just, I mean, I tell you all these stories all the time, and it's always hot. It's like, yes, where I grew up was a very hot place. So we're driving along, my dad's driving along, and the boys are goofing off, and all of a sudden, it starts to get uncomfortable in the car. And it turns out the AC has conked out, like it's just dead. So my dad's driving, and he kind of looks over, he starts to feel it getting hot, he fiddles with the knob and pushes that button and like kind of pounds on the dash a little bit, nothing, right? So there's no AC. Cruising along, Gulf Coast, summertime, suburban, full of teenage boys, Do you feel how this is starting to become in the environment? Some of you drive suburbans. You're like, preach it, I know. So my dad just shrugs and just keeps driving. Like when he was driving us on our adventures as a family, we were not pulling over unless you had some sort of like catastrophic medical event, like we were gonna go, like we were gonna get to that destination. So he's driving along and he doesn't stop even though the air conditioning has conked out. 
my buddy Matt's sitting next to him in the passenger seat, and he notices, and it's getting kind of warm, and he's like, okay, what's going on? And he says, hey, uh, Mr. Fletcher, are, are we going to pull over, right? The air conditioning's not working anymore. And my dad kind of looks over at him for a minute, and he goes, pull over. We got the best air conditioning in the world, 470 air conditioning. Four windows down, 70 miles an hour. And he rolls down all four windows, and they just keep going. Isn't that great? 470 air conditioning. I'm going to use that on my kids someday. What kind of a man goes on a road trip like that, voluntarily, giving of their time, letting teenage boys kind of run amok, going on these great adventures? My dad was that kind of guy. He's not a perfect guy. He had plenty of flaws. But he was also a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he knew part of his responsibility when he was leading a scout trip, when he was practicing law, whatever he was doing, is that his very being was meant for more. He was meant to point his life at something greater than himself. He was convicted of that to the core of his being till the end of his days. And so when he was on a Boy Scout trip and the air conditioner conked out, instead of freaking out or instead of just kind of white-knuckling it like many of us would do, he turned it into a moment where there could be some levity. It could be kind of funny. It wasn't funny for the guy stuck in the car, but there you go. My dad stepped into courageous things throughout his life because he was convinced that what he knew of Jesus Christ was too good to keep to himself. And so Scouts was part of that. So being involved with Habitat for Humanity was part of that. When I was a kid, Habitat for Humanity came to Houston and President Carter, Jimmy Carter, was actually there. And my dad never forgot the image of seeing the President of the United States swinging a hammer and putting together a home in a very poor neighborhood in Houston. It inspired him. It touched his heart. At the end of his life, he was involved in a ministry called Kairos Prison Fellowship. He was going into prisons in Texas, sharing the good news of the gospel with, as he called them, the men in white. That is a life that is not tied down by fear. It is not tied down by a, oh, I don't know, I'd I'd, I'd rather not, you know, that sounds kind of risky. That is a life that is called, as we'll talk about today, to go. A life that's called to build the kingdom, to partner with Jesus in building this incredible thing called the kingdom of God, where all the things that are wrong in the world are made right, and where God's rule and reign is 100% clear. So today's message, even though the scripture passage we just read talked a lot about death, and obviously I've been thinking a lot about death with my dad and with other things, today's message is about life. And it's about the life that God has for you and for me. And it is the life that we are called toward that is not small, that is not petty, that is not puny. It is the bigger life that is not only for us, but is for the people that we love, the people who aren't here yet. Bethany Community Church is a 103-year-old church. And throughout our history, we have been about the preaching of Jesus Christ and Christ resurrected and these three great ends of the church, if you will, gathering, growing, and going. Today is about our going which my dad used on scout trips and in Habitat and in Kairos, and each of us has something to discover that we are called to go toward. I believe that, and I believe today's text is going to point us toward how we will partner with God for the building of his kingdom. So there's an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to read through that, you'd like to take some notes. You also got a 3x5 card. Would you grab that card and hold it up real quick? There should have been a 3x5 card in your bulletin. If it gets hot, you can use it as a fan, right? Hold on to that. You can certainly take notes on that, but I would encourage you to hold on to it till the very end. That'll be part of our response. But let's get going here. The first, uh, <clears throat> first point in your outline is uh, the cycle. 
So let's talk about what that means. Please uh, pull out your Bible, pick up your Bible app, get it going. There are Bibles at the back table. If you do not have a Bible, please go pick one up and take it. It is our gift to you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 most of the time this morning. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15 and just verses 21 and 22 for us. And I invite you to listen as we think about the cycle that's being presented here. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. What Paul's teaching here is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event that has changed the world. The Corinthian church knew this, but like any of us, they forgot it. They lost sight of it. They were on their way to doing bigger and better things. They were in this cosmopolitan city. The distractions were many. Does this sound familiar? And he's reminding them, the resurrection is incredible. How do you remind someone of an incredible gift? You remind them of the thing that is so tied to that gift, in this case, which is death. You cannot appreciate the resurrection of Jesus Christ unless you really get your head around his death. That's why when we worship here toward Easter, we have a Good Friday service and we have Easter. And we encourage people to come to both because you really need to sit with the death of Jesus to appreciate the majesty of the resurrection. So every person, every culture around the world deals with this universal phenomenon of death. And there are Silicon Valley billionaires, there are entire divisions and major corporations devoted to dealing with death and trying to address it and trying to beat it like it's a disease. Last time I checked, except for Jesus Christ, death is batting a thousand. Like it, it, it ain't swung and missed yet. Every person deals with this. This is not part of the original plan. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. God looks upon the people he has made, Adam and Eve. He invites them into perfect relationship with him. And they say, no, we want to do it our way. And that leads to sin and that leads to death. Look at the people of Israel. Look at God's people in the family of the disciples. Look at the early church missing God's best over and over and over again. This is the pattern of sin. But like the writer James points out, sin gives birth to death. So we're stuck in this cycle. That's what Paul is pointing out here. The resurrection is amazing, but if you miss it, you will be stuck in this cycle of death. If you felt discouraged this week in your work, in your parenting, you experience part of the cycle of death. Because what it does is it drags us downward. It's like gravity. It's pulling us. There are all these opportunities we have to touch the life of Christ, to be involved in good things. And when we get small, when we get inwardly focused, when all we think about is me and mine and my stuff and my people, it just pulls us down. Every one of us has experienced some version of this cycle, this spiral in this past week. Maybe it was when you got to work and you just stared at your screen and you went, I got nothing. I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Maybe you're a teacher and you showed up and you looked out on your students and you went, oh gosh, not you people, not today. Maybe you're a physician and you had another patient come in with the exact same procedure in their mind and they're trying to convince you to do it and you're just going, oh great, here we go again. This is the cycle. And our job is not to get out of the cycle. Our job is to rightly locate our hope. And so that's where we turn to part two, where we talk about the reign of God. He must reign. Breaking the cycle of sin and death and this downward spiral, it takes us getting out of our small, inwardly focused, often petty lives. And that requires us to identify something the text called enemies. So look with me at verse 25. 
The text is talking about the, the end of time when Christ comes to reign again. He's going to hand over the kingdom of God to the Father. And then here in verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He, Jesus, must reign until every enemy is under his feet. What does that mean? Well, the phrase under his feet is a common term from the ancient Near East. When a conquering army took over another country or another city, that city or country was said to be under the feet of their new ruler. It was a position of authority, a position of subjugation. But what's an enemy? Here in the text, an enemy is any adversary or power who is hostile to the kingdom of God. Anything that is hostile to God's rule and reign in the world is an enemy. Like what? Think about Jesus' day. Who are his enemies? Who are the people who were most adamantly opposed to his rule and reign? It was religious people. It was the Pharisees. It was the leaders. It was people maybe that Jesus actually knew from his time growing up as a young Jewish man. Maybe they were his own teachers. Maybe they were familiar faces to him. Have you ever had somebody that is further along in life than you, further ahead of the game, and you look back at you and go, like, you just don't get it? That's what Jesus experienced with these religious leaders who became his enemies and were opposed to his kingdom, the kingdom he came to proclaim, the kingdom of God. They said, no, 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 you can't talk like that. Only Messiah can talk like that. Well, guess what? There he was, and they missed him. Jesus' enemies maybe were the Romans, this oppressive government that was on top of his people, kind of had their boot on their neck. Maybe it was their heavy-handed form of governance, They certainly didn't mind Jesus so much until he was resurrected and his people started making trouble. Maybe it was the false teachers like Paul spent so much time writing about. Anybody who led people of faith in a crooked direction. Now notice the people that I've just outlined who are true enemies of the kingdom of God. These are not the people that Jesus associated with. And the people that Jesus' enemies would have said, those are our enemies. Jesus' enemies would have said, the poor are your enemy. They got it going bad. They would have said, the disabled are your enemy. So they did something wrong. Who sinned, him or his father? They would have said, tax collectors are your enemies. They would have said, the drunks are your enemies. They would have said, prostitutes are your enemies. Guess who hung out with Jesus? Everybody that his enemies said should be his enemy. So what about us? Do we have enemies? Is there a, we all live such disparate lives. We have such you know, different schedules. We're all spread all over the place, different commutes, different places we're heading to. Is it possible that there is one thing that we all come up to and go, that is an enemy of the kingdom of God and it is trying to steal my joy? Absolutely. I will name one thing, but there's a lot of things that I could name for us. And the one thing that I would name this morning that I hope gets every one of us in the heart is fear. Fear. Every one of us lives in a culture here on the east side where we are supposed to project confidence, but if you scratch just a little bit, and I'm including myself in this, right under the surface is insecurity and pain and fear. We fear that we'll fail. We got the big boy job, the big girl job, we got the big desk, we got the big responsibilities at the big company, big, 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 and what's the fear that keeps us up at night? It's not working. It's not working. I don't know what I'm doing here. I can't tell you how many times I've been to lunch or coffee with someone who is wildly successful and they will tell me, I'm afraid one day someone is going to figure out I don't know what I'm doing. 
I am terrified that one day someone will figure out, I have no idea how to make this company fly right or how to make my department work. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I love people like that because I'm like, yeah, me too. Me too. We fear rejection. I fear that people will figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. We fear admitting that we need help. We fear losing. We have FOMO. It's a real thing. It's not a joke. We fear that we will miss out, so we keep looking for the next house, the next car, the next spouse. We fear that if we don't white-knuckle our schedule, we will lose. And it is in the white-knuckling that we are losing. As a leader in the church, I fear for our fears. What are your fears? I'll tell you one that I fear for us, and I'm putting myself right in this bucket. I fear that we will play the game of our life together as a church not to lose. You know the difference between playing not to lose and playing to win? I fear that we will play not to lose. I fear that we'll get a couple years down the road, we'll make this move, we'll do some changes around here, things will look different, and I fear that every one of us will look back on the last couple of years of our life together in ministry, of our preaching, of our worship, of our children being together, and we'll go, man, there were so many opportunities where I could have talked to a neighbor about Jesus, where I could have started a conversation, where I could have invited somebody over to dinner. I missed it, I missed it, I missed it, because I played it safe. And I played not to lose. I didn't play to win. Church, I'm done playing not to lose. I want to play to win. I really want to play to win. And I want that to mean for our church, not just winning in the sense of like this, let's build the biggest thing and and make this a thousand people. No, 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 no. I want us to win the kingdom way of winning. Which is what Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 4. I have come to set captives free. I have come to bring sight to the blind. I have come to release people who are in captivity into freedom. And I am so concerned that our fears will keep us from playing the right game. Jesus Christ came to conquer all fear. Perfect love dries out fear, the scripture tells us. So where do we see an end to this? If our fears are real and they hold us and they grip us, there's got to be a way out. What's the way out? When will this end? When will the enemies fall? These enemies of the kingdom like poverty and racism and injustice. I talked to two people this week who are so concerned, and they should be, for the enemies of the kingdom that are gun violence and that are the opioid crisis. Those are enemies of the kingdom. So what do we do? Where do we even start? Turn with me to verse 26. It's a simple phrase. The text says this, the last enemy to be destroyed is what, church? Death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, back to my dad for just a little bit. The journey my family's been on. My dad passed away after a brief and intense battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He'd been sick off and on for about a year. We didn't really know what was going on. There were different signs. It was, it was hard to put together. And so in early July, he was actually diagnosed with the disease. He fought like crazy. He was at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, which is the premier cancer hospital in the world. No better place he could have been to receive the best possible care. And it was just too much. It was just too much. And so six weeks ago today, he passed away. And there have been tons of grief for my family and I to kind of ride through like a ship on a sea. There have also been amazing amounts of comfort. I cannot tell you how many people 
have also experienced the loss of a parent. That has just blown me away. And they get at a level the grief that I and my family are going through. That has been an incredible gift of God's comfort. It's a gift I wish I didn't have to receive, but there I am. Now the worst when you've been through grief is the why, right? Why did this happen? What, what came about? Why? And there's two ways for us to kind of approach this. There's the medical why, and then there's the theological why. The medical why is, my dad was really sick for a year, and he came into the hospital with a very, very, very low baseline of his health. And the cancer was really aggressive. And by the time they caught it, it was just too far gone. That's the medical, you can look at it on a chart, you can look at it in a microscope, why did this happen? But there's a theological why that's a lot harder to deal with. A good man died. Why? A good man who did good things died. Why? Wasn't perfect, but he was not held back by the fears that I worry about for us and for myself. He taught the Bible. He helped share Christ with the men in white. So, shouldn't someone like that get another 20, get another 30, get a few more decades on this wonderful earth? Shouldn't he? Go back to the text. What's the last enemy? The last enemy is the enemy that took down my dad. Death. The last enemy is the enemy that is taken away from you and from me. And it's not done. But think about Jesus' plan to defeat all of his enemies. Picture in your mind with me, and I'll, we'll have a slide up here behind me, a line of dominoes. Picture a line of dominoes stacked up. They can tip over with just the flick of a finger. And if you picture that last domino at the very end, the one that's going to be the last one to fall, that's death. Now think about all the other dominoes that are before that one. All the other enemies of Jesus. All the other enemies of the kingdom. Injustice and racism and broken relationships and gun violence and the opioid crisis. People living in isolation and fear. Kids going to school hungry. You name it. There's a domino for each and every one of those enemies of God. Enemies of the kingdom. And what I've learned is that those other dominoes must fall first. And then the last domino will fall. Then no one else has to die. Then there's no more cancer. Then there's no more fear. So my dad died, and I love him, and I miss him. And that last domino hasn't fallen. And that means our calling as a church is not done. It's not. It can't be. Because Jesus isn't done taking down the other dominoes. There is more work to be done. There are more enemies of the kingdom that must be taken down. And I'm not suggesting that people can do this on our own or that we're going to hurry up the end of time by taking care of this. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is the church, the group of people, the family of God that are called to partner with Jesus in the work of the kingdom, we have work to do. Because death is not done. And everything that must come before death, that's what we're going to go after. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And the disciples went, what? You're not going to help us? What do you mean? What? 
And they didn't know how. And I think I know a little bit more of the how today than I did before my dad died. Because we're going to partner with Jesus and we're going to defeat these enemies. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen in my lifetime. It may not happen in your generation. But we are going to keep pushing up against these dominoes until they fall. We're going to partner with Jesus and see them come down. Because Jesus is in charge, it will happen. And we are called to be a part of it, of his reign, of his rule. And so we will partner with Jesus to help hungry kids be fed in our schools. We will partner with Jesus to end injustice and racism and cruelty, and it will begin with our own hearts and our own speech and our own awareness of what other people who look different than many of us go through every single day. We will partner with Jesus to end poverty by practicing generosity by giving to the work of the kingdom in his church and in so many other corners. We're going to end loneliness and despair. We're going to partner with Jesus to do this by connecting teenagers and adults and kids throughout our community and meet them where they are and tell them about the God who loves them. We're going to end the fear and the despair of neighbors who are in prison in their gilded cages. These lovely places we've built for ourselves. And we've spent so much time making our home perfect, and we've spent so much time making our family perfect, and so much time making our career perfect, and our Instagram perfect, and we have lost the ability to risk. And our fear keeps us in prison. You and I are called to talk to people who love their gilded cages and to help them find their way out through Jesus Christ. And we're going to end cycles of poverty and abandonment for marginalized youth by pointing them toward a safe place where they can learn and grow. This is what Jesus told his disciples they would do in Matthew chapter 20. As you go, in your going, go and make disciples. Go and proclaim my good news to every nation, every corner of the earth. As you go, this is a huge task. This is a tremendous opportunity. This will change the world. The church has been changing the world for a long time. And now it's our turn. And now we get to pick up the ball and run with it. And it is tremendously difficult. And what I want us to agree to do is that we will do this together. So say something real quickly with me. Say, we will go. We will go. Say that with me. We will go. In response to this calling, in response to the dominoes needing to fall, we will go. Now say this with me. We will go together. We will go together. We will go together. I am at my worst when I forget the together. I am at my worst when I think it's all on me to help us, to grow us, to to bring more people in. We will grow together. We will go together. We will go with great partners in our community. We will go with an eye toward the least and the lost, but we will do it together. We will not do it alone. And we will not live in fear, and we will not play not to lose. So where do we begin? Grab that three by five card that you have. We can take down the domino picture. Thank you. 
So I want to share a conviction that I have had that is visual, and so I wanted you to have this card to draw your own version of it. So I'll tell you when you can draw. There's pens at the back if anybody needs one. About a year ago, I realized that I walk almost every day of the week in a shape of a triangle. So just go with me on this. I go from my house down here. That's a house. And I walk with our kids up to my daughter's preschool, which is up here. You know, it's like a 10-minute walk through our neighborhood. And then I walk over here with my son to his school. And then I walk home. And that's most days of the week. And then I go to my office, then I go meet people for coffee, and I do these other things. But what I was convicted of is this. This triangle has been entrusted to me. And there is something that God wants me to be doing with other people in my triangle. That is the space and the influence where the kingdom needs to be revealed, and I've been uniquely entrusted with it. And I didn't know at the time what that meant, but that's my triangle, and I'm responsible for it. And so what I want us to do in the remaining moments that we have together is I want you to take that three-by-five card, and I want you to draw your triangle or your rhombus or your trapezoid or whatever fun shape you have. It's the places that you go most frequently. Home, work, grocery store, great. Home, school, work, whatever. If there's a bar in there, that's fine too. You know what I mean? Draw the shape that has been entrusted to you and pray over that. So go ahead and take just a minute We'll be silent and draw that shape that God has entrusted to you where your influence is so deeply needed. What I want you to do is to take time and do this, maybe do it now, do it later, draw that shape, and then I want you to write down a question on the back. Jesus, how can I partner with you? How can I partner with you? Recognizing that Jesus is already doing something in that shape, in that space that you inhabit, how can I partner with you, Jesus? If it helps, draw a picture of a domino and say, Jesus, how can I knock down a domino? How can I take that thing out? And I want you to take this thing home and I want you to pray about it. And if you're like me, you need to be reminded to pray for things. So stick this in your prayer journal or put it in your Bible or tape it up next to your screen at work or put it on your dashboard so you can see it when you're driving, not when you're texting, when you're driving. And if you want to feel extra courageous today, write this down. My next step is. What's one faithful step you can take? Just one. You don't have to have the whole plan, just one faithful step. My next step, when I started to think about this triangle, bless you, is I just met with people in each of these places. I met with the head of the school over here, and I met with the principal over here, and I just said, look, I don't know what I can do, but I'm a part of a church that wants to do something. How can we help? And that conversation got rolling, and we did the TechWise Family Series, and we've done some other stuff there. We've done Community Serve Day. I'm not saying those things all came from me. I'm just saying there's something to be done and continuing to be done for the sake of the kingdom in the place that's been entrusted to me. 
So church, find your triangle, find your square, find your place of influence. Maybe it's just in your building. You walk from your office to get coffee to the restroom, and that's your triangle. That's where you can influence. It doesn't have to be this big. It could be really small, but really impactful for the kingdom. My dream is that we as a church, we play to win. And we play in such a way that the kingdom of God is revealed in ways we could never have imagined. That a year from now, we look back on this time, we look back on this date, and we go, we had no idea that God wanted to do this. Or that God wanted to reach people in this way. Or that there was this group of people over here, and we needed to learn from them, and they were going to come and teach us so much. We had no idea. No idea. And we're so glad God did. Friends, may those spaces fill our hearts and our imagination in the week ahead. May God use it for his glory. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you for your faithful word to us. Thank you for being the living word. Thank you that in you you there is no darkness, there is only light. So as we've heard your word proclaimed, as we've had this opportunity to reflect a little bit on the unique places we inhabit, and your call to go, go together, go with others, would you help us, would you teach us, would you challenge us and convict us that the other dominoes have not yet fallen? And so death is not done, but our part, our calling, is also not done. Lord, help us. We ask these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.